Prestige heads and welcome to Weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison. Uh, and we are very excited to do what we usually do and get started with the news. Um, so Derek, there's been some developments in Ukraine as every week. There's been developments of Ukraine uh, in Ukraine. What's been going on? Yes, I would say this is subjective, but I would say it's been a little quieter this past week than most since the invasion began. Uh, but there have been some developments. Um, I guess we should start with the military developments such as they are. Um, there have been a few things to note. One is that um, the Russian advances is continuing in the Donbass uh, slowly but, but surely, as I've been saying for a couple of weeks now. Um, there are indications that they're Advancing forward, they're taking some villages. It seems like they're pretty close to having full control over the Donbass region, which was a region that Russian separatists probably held about a third of, roughly speaking, uh, before the invasion. So that that is progress. It hasn't gone very fast, but um, you know it has been uh, fairly steady. I think we talked maybe last week uh, or a couple weeks ago about the possibility uh, that the Russian goal here is to sweep all the way across southern Ukraine, uh, all the way to Moldova to link up with the Transnistria region, which is also a Russian uh, Russophilic separatist uh, region. And there, there have been a couple of developments on that front as well. There's been, I think, uh, increased Russian interest in uh, Odessa, which is one of the major, actually probably the, the only major port city that's still under Ukrainian control. It's on the Black Sea, uh, kind of southwestern Ukraine. There have been, uh, by, by my estimation, an increase in Russian airstrikes, missile attacks, on that city. According to Ukrainian officials, Russia's new evasive hypersonic missiles were used to carry out some of the attacks. Additionally, in Kherson Oblast, uh, in southern Ukraine, which is right just north of Crimea and has been in Russian control for several weeks now, uh, there are indications that the uh, there's going to be some kind of referendum on annexation uh, that will be held there, annexation to Russia. Uh, the new regional government has said it will ask the Russian government to uh, kind of hold uh, some sort of referendum by the end of the year. That new regional government has, of course, been put in place by the Russian government, so it's somewhat of a, a circular process here. Um, but the indications are that Russia uh, may have some designs on permanently holding on to at least that part of Ukraine uh, You know, after this conflict is over. Beyond, you know, outside of the southern region, uh, the other place where there seems to have been some movement, and again, you get sort of half reports here because everything's, one side says this, the other side says another thing. But the Ukrainian military or Ukrainian forces appear to have launched a uh, relatively contained kind of localized counteroffensive uh, in the area north of Kharkiv, 
which is in northeastern uh, Ukraine, uh, and has been surrounded, well, not surrounded, but but the Russians uh, advanced as far as the city of Kharkiv fairly early on in the war and have held that territory for some time. The Ukrainians seem to be uh, recovering a lot of the territory north of Kharkiv, and the Russians are falling back. That could indicate that they just don't have the um, you know, the supply lines or the, the wherewithal to defend those areas, it probably indicates that they don't see that region as particularly vital at this point. Um, but it nevertheless has been, um, you know, some progress on the, on the Ukrainian side in terms of, you know, kind of regaining territory that they had lost. What does this suggest about the state of the war? Is this something I'm particularly interested in seeing if we're going to be entering a Syria-type situation where this is going to essentially become a battleground for various powers internationally and drag on indefinitely? The war has been going on for a couple of months now. Are we able to answer that question, which is what both you and I feared from the beginning, or is that still unclear given the various reversals and, and gains made by Russia? Yeah, I mean, I think there were a couple of ways this could have gone from the beginning. One is sort of a, a, a soft partition in the way that Syria has been kind of partitioned at this point. Uh, another was just a full-on occupation insurgency a la Afghanistan. I think that's off the table. But but yes, you, you, you raised Syria, and I think that's a good, a fairly good example, particularly if you know, the Russians do have designs on hanging on to southern Ukraine, or at least to the parts of southern Ukraine that they've already taken. Um, that's that's not going to be accepted by anybody. It's not going to be accepted, certainly, by the Ukrainian government. It's not going to be accepted by uh, the, the, the West, let's say. I, I was going to say international community, but uh, let's be honest. We're talking about the West. Uh, and so that that will be a that would lead to a Syria type situation where, you know, what you have in Syria is, uh, you know, a pocket in the northwest that's controlled by rebels. You have a strip along the border that's controlled by Turkey. You have territory in the northeast that's controlled by the Kurds in the United States. Uh, and then the rest is sort of held by the government. I think that that's. Uh, a fairly good analogy to make, and that's that. That's a setup for basically an extended frozen conflict where you have occasional, um, you know, attacks along the front line, but everybody's kind of uh, standing back and and watching. Uh, the one thing that that could shift this is if this uh, right now, I think, relatively contained Ukrainian counteroffensive gets any kind of steam behind it. Uh, and the way that would happen is if there is a, a very large, over the next few months, influx of Western arms or arms coming from, let's say, NATO members that were formerly uh, in the Warsaw Pact who have uh, the kind of weaponry that, that the Ukrainian military is familiar with. Um, as they, uh, you know, if, if more kind of heavy artillery tanks, that kind of thing, uh, flows in, and unless the Russians do something dramatic like a full national mobilization, which is something we can talk about the, the Victory Day speech, I think that's the other thing to note from this week, um, but unless they do something dramatic like that, could leave the Ukrainians in a, a a position where they can uh, make even more kind of progress uh, in this Kharkiv region uh, and maybe start to threaten Russian supply lines in the Donbass. But, uh, you know, that's all very speculative. The Russians say they've been, um, you know, destroying as much 
uh, Western imported military equipment as they can. And also they've been attacking rail lines and the kinds of things that, that uh, the kinds of infrastructure that, that are required to bring that material uh, to the East. So, um, you know, who knows if that's, if that's actually going to come together, but that's something that could change the dynamic, uh, at least in, in Eastern Ukraine in, in, uh, in the coming months. So are we beginning to see a little bit the emergence of what a post-war settlement is going to look like, um, what territory Ukraine is going to lose, uh, what territory Russia is going to gain, and what this means for Russia's geostrategic position? Because on one hand, it does seem like they're going to get some some form of new territory. But on the other hand, this does seem to have, <laughs> uh, to say the least, taken the wind out of the Russian military's sails. Um, so are we beginning to see any larger implications from the war now that it's been going on for a while, or is it still too early to really tell? Uh, I, to me, it's it's very difficult to envision a scenario where the Russians give up what they've taken already. Um, there are strategic reasons to hold on to, to want to hold on to Kherson. Uh, obviously, they, they would like to hang on to Mariupol, which... Uh, is still there's still sort of a, a battle going on at the Azovstal steelworks, but uh, uh, supposedly, according to the UN, all the civilians have been evacuated from that site. It's unclear just what the situation is at this point. Um, you know, they would they would like to hold on to that strip of territory on the on the Azov Sea coast that runs between the Donbas and Crimea. They'd like to keep the Donbas at least um, as this sort of quasi-independent entity, if not outright annex it. Uh, and of course, Crimea, I mean, the, you know, that's that's been years in the making now. The, the Russians have, uh, you know, long since considered that a, a sort of already settled matter. What, as to what that's going to look like in a post-war settlement, I don't think, as I said uh, earlier, I don't think anybody's going to be willing to accept that uh, well, anybody, by anybody, I mean the Ukrainian government or the United States or NATO, um, you know, any of the countries that have been imposing sanctions, let's say, on Russia over the invasion. I don't think they're going to be willing to accept that and sort of peel back the sanctions and say everything's, uh, this is just the new normal and let's all learn to get along. Um, so I think you would be set up for a, a long term uh, again, kind of frozen conflict with an economic component that, that would be designed to uh, continue to try to wring some punishment out of the Russian economy uh, to you know in in response to these territorial seizures. Once you start talking about Odessa and and the rest of southern Ukraine and southern Ukrainian coastline, I think you get into a situation where that's not even acceptable. That won't even be acceptable to to Ukraine from a like okay, we can stop here and just kind of stare at each other perspective. Like they're going to want some of that territory back. Uh, to hear Volodymyr Zelensky talk lately, he's been uh, very kind of um, forceful about gaining, regaining all of Ukraine's territory up to and including Crimea. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, he's sort of dreaming if he thinks that's going to happen. But, um, you know, I guess you go, you go into a <laughs> negotiation, not that they're actually negotiating, but uh, you sort of go in with your maximum demand, which, um, you know, I suppose is what he's trying to do there. But yeah, I, I think at the very least, the, the territory that's under Russian control now, there's not going to be a military solution to driving them out of that territory unless you're really willing to um, to risk escalation beyond what we're seeing now. We'll, we'll, we'll see what uh, what happens. 
So why don't we move now on to Sri Lanka and the violence that has recently um, erupted there. Derek, could you give us some context? Why is it important? What does it suggest about South Asia right now? So Sri Lanka has been experiencing uh, an extended period, several weeks now, of uh, very large anti-government protests, primarily over uh, a struggling economy. Uh, the feeling that the uh, Rajapaksa family, which sort of is sort of monopolized political authority in Sri Lanka over the past few years, uh, has mismanaged the economy. They've they've been, uh, you know, there are indications of corruption. They've allowed the country to become, you know, very heavily indebted, and this is paying off now in a sense with the shortages of goods. A lot of the things that people are experiencing all over the world because of Ukraine, because of the supply chain challenges, but they've been magnified, I think, uh, in Sri Lanka because of some of these pre-existing conditions, as it were. It's not just food the country can't afford to import. It's everything. Sri Lanka has less than 50 million U.S. dollars in its treasury. So there have been protests for several weeks they erupted on Monday uh, into uh, outright violence. The protests up until then had been fairly peaceful. They really erupted into violence on Monday when it seems that Prime Minister uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was a former president and uh, is now the prime minister for his brother, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who's currently president, uh, it seems that he bust in a large group of kind of supporters, pro-government or pro-Rajapaksa supporters into Colombo, the capital, uh, on Monday, and they began attacking these anti-government protesters. Well, the anti-government protesters responded, and there was a lot more of them than there were the pro-government counter-protesters, uh, and things really got out of hand. Um, uh, you know, I think five people were killed. Uh, scores of people were wounded, upwards of 200 or maybe more by this point. People attacked Mahinda Rajapaksa's official residents in the capital and said it, uh, he had to be rescued, I think, by the military. At the height of all of this on Monday as this was going on, Mahinda Rajapaksa announced that he was resigning uh, as prime minister in order to kind of speed the way for the appointment of a national unity government. Uh, now, people are still demanding the resignation of Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the, the Sri Lankan president. He's shown no inclination uh, of wanting to leave. He did appoint a new prime minister just uh, today, Thursday, uh, a former, uh, f- actually former multi, you know, several time prime minister, uh, Ranil uh, Vikramasinghe, excuse me if I'm mispronouncing that, who is supposed to be, you know, kind of this elder statesman, you know, the kind of guy who could lead a national unity government and calm everybody down and uh, kind of get the political crisis uh, settled a little bit. Uh, It's unclear, however, whether any opposition parties are actually going to participate in this national unity government. They've shown very little inclination to be a part of anything that uh, the Rajapaksas are involved in. It's sort of, a, I think, partly, you know, when you're... you're, uh, enemy is drowning, throw him an anchor type of a thing. They don't want to do anything that could help uh, save Gotabaya Rajapaksa's job. Uh, so there, there's some uncertainty, I think, about how this national unity government is actually going to come about. What are the larger geopolitical implications? I mean, I've got a piece that we're going to talk about on the show, talking about U.S. grand strategy in the quote-unquote Indo-Pacific. <laughs> uh, so are there any larger geostrategic implications here? 
There, there are. The Rajapaksas who made their bones at the end of the Sri Lankan Civil War, Mahinda Rajapaksa was president during the, the very end of it. He and Gotabaya both are, have been accused of war crimes in the like late days of that war as they were sweeping up the remnants of the Tamil Tigers. Uh, but that's really where they made their, their name and they've sort of, uh, they can't, kind of rose to power again on the backs of a national security uh, agenda. But they've long been... Uh, very friendly with China. And there's a real tug of war uh, in Sri Lanka. And there's a similar kind of tug of war in in other Indian Ocean countries, uh, the Maldives, for example, uh, between India and China for influence. And the traditional role that India has played with these countries has been uh, supplanted to some degree by China over over the last several years. Uh, the Rajapaksas were very much pro-China. They did a Belt and Road project, or a couple of Belt and Road projects that turned out to be kind of boondoggles. Uh, one of them, I think, was uh, you know just to kind of improve infrastructure in their family home, like their their ancestral home, which uh, you know didn't turn out to be much uh, much use to anybody, and has contributed uh, to this problem of indebtedness. So, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a real question about Chinese influence in the Indian Ocean. India's kind of effort to, or kind of desire to claw back some of the influence that it feels uh, like it's lost to China in in recent years. So that there is a a larger issue here. There's kind of a larger narrative playing out behind the scenes. And of course, we can uh, surmise, I think, that the, the United States would prefer to see a less China-friendly government in power, although I think the Biden administration has stayed pretty much out of this, from what I can tell rhetorically, other than to issue, you know, sort of statements about violence. And, you know, we hope everybody can kind of uh, Are they pro uh, act peacefully. Uh, uh, my guess is that they're anti-Rajapaksa, that they would prefer to see a, a new oh, government Oh, I meant violence. Are they pro-anti-violence? Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the public statements, you're always anti-violence, Danny. You can't be pro-violence. But IRL, uh, you, public, are, uh, you are pro-violence. And that actually, <laughs> sadly... Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, they're not terribly sad to see uh, some turmoil for this Sri Lankan government. That's my sense. And that, that brings us to one of the most depressing, if unsurprising, um, news stories of this week. Uh, and that is the killing of um, Shireen Abu Akhle in, in Palestine. And Derek and I were talking about it beforehand. And, and this just, just shows, once again, how the um, occupation grinds on. Um, so, Derek, maybe you could just give people a sense of, of who Shireen Abu Akhle was, uh, why she was important, and what happened. So, Shireen Abalakla is an Al Jazeera reporter. She's been one of the, you know, eminent, most eminent, I would say, or longest serving or, or most respected uh, reporters in Palestine for some time now. Uh, she was covering uh, an Israeli arrest raid in the West Bank in the city of Jenin on Wednesday, along with a, at least one other reporter, Ali Asamudi, uh, who was wounded in the same incident. Uh, and she was killed. She was shot and killed. Um, and that's that's basically where the common narrative ends. The Israeli government acknowledged that it was conducting an operation in the area, but said that the Palestinian-American reporter might have been killed by Palestinian militants during the gunfight. Now, even though all the eyewitnesses around Shireen at the time, including nearby journalists reporting on that raid, refuted the Israeli claim. Samudi and other witnesses have indicated that it was the Israeli 
military, the Israeli occupation forces who kind of, you know, were tracking down alleged Palestinian militants, uh, and suddenly a group of them turned around and opened fire on these reporters, killed uh, Abu Akleh, and as I say, Samoudi was was wounded in the in the fire. Uh, now, the Israelis, after initially claiming that they were shot by Palestinian militants, which was too implausible even by their standards, uh, have now suggested that there was a crossfire, that the Palestinian militants were in the vicinity of these reporters and the Israelis, and they were, you know, sort of shooting back back and forth, and it's not clear uh, who actually fired the fatal shot. They've said they're going to investigate, um, but witness evidence uh, or witness, I guess, witness statements, I don't want to say evidence, witness statements suggest that there was, in fact, no crossfire, that the the operation against the militants was taking place some number of blocks away from where uh, the journalists had kind of stationed themselves. Uh, and so this really does seem like it may have been a just kind of, I, I, I hate to, I don't want to say intentional necessarily, but I think the it seems like the big question here is uh, whether the Israelis kind of mistake open fire on these reporters or intentionally tried to uh, to kill them or did in one in, in this case kill them so there there are calls for an investigation um, the Israelis claim they're going to be doing one they want to do a joint investigation with the Palestinians the Palestinians have so far told them to uh, get bent uh, and are uh, suggesting they may take the case to the International Criminal Court uh, but we'll see uh, Abu Akli was a US citizen. Uh, so that may buy her some uh, her, her the investigation into her death some uh, weight that the average Israeli shooting of a Palestinian in the West Bank would not get. There was a I think you know just a few months ago there was a a, a dual Palestinian U.S. citizen who was who died of a heart attack in custody. There was evidence he was mistreated by Israeli forces again in the West Bank. Uh, and that investigation resulted in a couple of kind of low-ranking soldiers being disciplined. Um, and again, it was, I think, the connection to the United States and the fact that the, the victim was a U.S. citizen that pressured the Israelis into undertaking something like a legitimate investigation. Uh, that may also happen here, although I don't have a lot of faith that, uh, uh, you know, there's not going to be some kind of effort to whitewash this. But uh, again, this happened Wednesday. Uh, it's still very early to draw broader conclusions, but it certainly seems like, you know, maybe an intentional killing. At the very least, uh, something went terribly, terribly wrong. Do you think, I mean, it's very difficult to know, but it's just not just another, but just, you know, uh, the latest in the long line of examples of, of what happens as a result of this awful occupation and that, it, like many things in our politics, it's not going to change? Or do you think this will be a hinge point? Or um, what what do you think? Because it's interesting, when it first happened, it did seem like there was a large amount of outcry. But in the last two days, it seems to have, sorry, in the last day, it seems to have dissipated already. Yeah, there was, I mean, there was a large funeral. Thousands of people turned out on the West Bank on Thursday to, um, you know, obviously honor her passing and, but, but also her killing, her killing really, uh, to protest, to demand, uh, justice for the people who killed her. Um, but you, I think you're right. I think it's more likely that this is going to recede into the background. Uh, you may see like, you know, a couple, again, a couple, you know, a low ranking, Israeli soldier to kind of take the fall for something, but I, I doubt we'll ever have any firm indication, for example, whether uh, there was some 
purposefulness uh, behind this shooting, even though, as, as I've, I've said a couple of times, there's uh, some some indication that that was the case or might have been the case. So on that depressing note, why don't we turn to our last topic, which is a possible summit of the Americas boycott. So before we even get into that, Derek, for people who might not know, what is the summit of the Americas and why should we care? Well, the Summit of the Americas, uh, it's been around since the 90s. I don't know the full history here, but uh, it is supposed to bring everybody together, all the leaders of all the countries uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, The first one took place uh, in the U.S., uh, as I say, in the 90s, but these summits are held um, every three years, and they've been held all over uh, all over the Americas. And, and you know, I mean, it's a chance for everybody to glad hand. And um, uh, these kinds of summits don't usually produce a lot. But they're, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're important for the host country. They're kind of, uh, you know, image boost. And for a Biden administration that wants to have put a happy face on American policy in Latin America. Um, I think, you know, this was a chance. I mean, Joe Biden and we, you know, you know, he, what did he, what was it like a, a couple of months ago, somebody asked him about uh, Mexico and he uh, made a point of saying that, you know, Latin America, which is traditionally thought of as quote unquote, America's backyard uh, is America's front yard. It's not America's backyard. So he's trying to, he's trying to be nice. Although I think that's even more chilling than being America's backyard, frankly. It's not America's backyard. Everything south of the Mexican border is America's front yard. Uh, um, so but, grim. You can't make imperialism sound nice. It's always so funny when people yes, try. Yes, it really, it really is weird. Uh, but I think for the Biden administration and the idea of having you know all the the leaders of uh, various Latin American countries come to Los Angeles, supposed to be held in Los Angeles next month, uh, and it, it's kind of a statement for them. And and they could they, it was a it's a it's a big kind of image booster. Now that said. Uh, there have been rumblings, and the administration hasn't made a definitive announcement about this, but there have been rumblings uh, that they are planning to snub uh, three particularly unfriendly or con- you know, governments that are considered to be unfriendly to Washington in Latin America, the governments of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Uh, so that would, of course, you know, upset this idea of everybody, uh, coming together and, and, you know, putting their differences aside and hanging out with each other. Uh, but it's drawn the, the implication or the, well, not the implication, but the, the sort of suggestion that the United States might not invite these leaders has drawn sharp. And negative responses from a number of Latin American leaders at this point. Uh, Luis Arce, uh, the president of Bolivia, is the latest to say uh, if these three countries aren't invited, if they're not invited to send representation, I'm not going to go. Andres Manuel Lopez uh, Obrador, the, the president of Mexico, uh, made a similar announcement earlier this week or a similar threat, let's say, earlier this week. He said, uh, you know, I'll send my foreign affairs secretary, but I'm not going to go if these three countries aren't invited. Uh, There's a large number of Caribbean states. I don't have the full list, but a large number of them uh, have uh, kind of put together a joint statement that uh, they would reconsider attending as well uh, if these three countries aren't invited. So uh, there's a brewing embarrassment here, I think, for the Biden administration to not invite. That doesn't sound like uh, the Biden administration to me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And wind up with like, you know, 10 other countries saying, uh, you know, we're not going to come or we're, you know, it's not that we're not going to come, but we're not going to send our 
top leaders will send, you know, some subordinate representation, but we're not going to. They're gonna not going to send the, their best nurse. Uh, They'll send right, their they're not going to send their best. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that that could be really embarrassing, I think, for the Biden administration. So I, I, I wonder uh, if they're going to maybe rethink this idea of, of not inviting the three countries. If not, then, yeah, they're really they really are going to have uh, kind of a boycott on their hands. Well, on that happy note, which is kind of a, I mean, that's a neutral note, neutral I would to, be, you know, chaotic good for these guys stick together. Solidarity, man. You know, chaotic, good. Screw chaotic this. You can, if you can embarrass the Biden administration over something, which is just dumb. I mean, not inviting Cuba and not inviting Nicaragua, not inviting Venezuela. It's just dumb. Uh, one of the things they want to talk about, uh, you know, as the United States always wants to talk about is migration to the southern border. So, uh, you know, if they're going to do something that causes the president of Mexico to boycott the summit, uh, you know, guess what? You're not going to going to get anything done on this uh, this thing that you want to talk about. So, uh, yeah, I just, you know, good, good for them. Stand together. Don't don't let the man keep you down. Well, on that happy note of solidarity, Derek Davison, thank you so much. Uh, and we will see you all next week. Please enjoy our interview uh, with Lauren Poyer about the Northmen. And also, please like and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's a really big deal on iTunes to let us know, uh, let people know that you like us, check out our Substack and all that good stuff. Uh, so thank you, sign everyone. Sign up for the free list at Substack. Yes, yeah, sign up for the free list. We're, we're revving up content. We're revving up interactions, all that excellent, fun stuff. We really are looking forward to uh, interacting more with every one of our listeners who wants to do that. So uh, thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend, colleague, and comrade, Derek Davison. And we are very excited to be joined today by Lauren Poyer. Uh, Lauren is an assistant teaching professor in the Department of Scandinavian Studies at the University of Washington, and we're here to discuss the Northmen. But before we do that, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. is the first time I'm talking about this film since I saw it last week. So, oh, perfect. Oh, God. So we're we're, right. we're, we're going to get ready for the hot takes or the, the cold takes, as thoughts. it were. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like the raw meat that those people took to the theater. Did you guys see that? I'm sorry. I don't mean to do. Oh, oh yeah, I did see that. That was like a the white like nationalist who took like oh, yeah. raw meat into the theater with them. Yeah, that that must yeah, have been they, fun. Yeah, it's so, so crazy. Yeah, but maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. But why don't we just start at the beginning? And so, Lauren, before we actually get into the Northmen, I was just wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about the ways Vikings are presented in contemporary American culture or really international culture. Um, in recent years, it does seem like there's there's been an explosion of Viking content. You have the show Vikings, um, obviously, and you have all of the ripoffs that came from them um, and, and sort of other similar stories. I know there's one, I forget the name of it, that's about kind of like early um, Anglo-Saxons and, and things along those lines. Uh, you have an Assassin's Creed game being made about Vikings. You have Game of Thrones, which is not quite Vikings, but it's like the War of the Roses plus like Viking vibes a little bit and sort of the Sea Peoples. So I was just wondering, what what role do you see Vikings as playing in American popular culture? 
<laughs> it's funny that you used to want to start with that question. I actually made a joke in my Old Norse language class a few weeks ago about why Vikings are so popular that caused a lot of contention in my class. A couple of people came to office hours afterwards just to ask, ask about it. I made a joke. I said, America loves Vikings because America loves police. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so hot take right out the gate, I guess. That is but, a hot. That is scorching. That, that's, that's what we're yeah, here that's for. Fiery, nice. Yeah. Well, so I, I um I think there's a couple of reasons why Vikings are having a moment, or especially we're having a moment in the 2010s. And I think I think we cannot discount the influence that uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings had on an entire generation of media consumers. The, like those films in the early 2000s were like genre changing and genre defining for fantasy broadly, but especially like medieval fantasy. And I think it rekindled or kindled in, in the millennial generation, especially like an interest in medieval Europe as an imaginative space. And so you get now, 15, 20 years later, a whole generation of people who have grown up reading Lord of the Rings, seeing the films, maybe playing Dungeons and Dragons. And so they're looking for, like, what are the historical underpinnings or inspirations for all of this media that they love so much? And I think there's something especially attractive about Vikings because of the longer history of their representation in Europe and North America, which is always tied up in a sense of, you know, national destiny and victory and power and a lot of like masculine coded words and manifest destiny, you know, and so a lot of kind of, to a certain extent, unexamined um, American values around uh, imperialism are super tied up in Vikings. Um, and I don't I don't think that Vikings, the television show, like the History Channel show, is necessarily like the production team was like, oh, I'm going to make a show about imperialism, right? But I think the idea of, you know, the rugged individual, typically male explorer who can go out on his own and discover something new and strange and gets to also love his family and would never kill women and children and always fights for the right thing while encountering strange new lands. I mean, that's that's not Vikings. That's Columbus. You know, like I, I see a lot of parallels in the kinds of stories that are told um, with with Vikings. So here's a question that that is uh, probably a bit outside of your area, but I'm curious if you know, were Vikings sort of popular characters in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries during sort of the era of, of high colonization out West? Yes. <laughs> yes, they they were. So the first English language translations that we have of the sagas, medieval Icelandic literature, which most of which is written down after the end of the Viking Age, but a lot of it takes place in the Viking Age. Um, the first translation we have of the Icelandic sagas into uh, English was actually in the 1860s. So like during the Civil War. Um, which is always a trip for my students to learn. I think it was William Morrison's translation of Njál's saga. Um, so it was a, a, an English, like British English uh, scholar who's translating it. But those those stories, um, once translated into English, kind of 
uh, trickle out into, you know, the expanding middle class in the Anglophone world. And by the 1890s, I mean, you have the genre of historical fiction in, you know, late Victorian England and in the U.S. where people are are writing and consuming like pulp novels about Vikings. So they're very much part of the Anglophone consciousness of like exploration. And they're also very much tied up in um, larger movements of like or larger interest in, in racial science, the idea of, like, the Anglo-Saxon race or the Nordic race. Um, and so there's a lot of interest um, in combining those narratives or, like, comparing those narratives of, like, the Viking Age in Scandinavia to, like, the lived experiences of people in the late 19th, early 20th century in America. Yeah. And, and of course, also, I mean, um, we, we know Seattle well. There was a large Scandinavian immigration to the United States in parts as well, um, and a large German immigration of people from the German principalities pre-unification. So uh, do they also bring sort of this, like, Norse mythology thing? Because I, I think today in a lot of people's minds, at least somewhat, Vikings are associated with, like, the far right, particularly, you know, the Nazis' use of runic symbols and, and the classic things. But before that, in the United States, were, were these stories brought over, you know, um, from, from Scandinavian and also Germanic immigrants? Or, or not really? It's mostly the English translation that seems to spread it throughout the bourgeois household, effectively. Mm-hmm. I would say we do have some evidence that Scandinavian immigrants brought over, even, you know, from Iceland, medieval manuscripts, because those were mostly owned by families until the early modern period where they were collected and then put in, you know, the um, the library at the University of Copenhagen. So we do have, there are some medieval Icelandic manuscripts of sagas that have been donated to like Harvard and Yale and Cornell, I think as well, um, that were brought over by immigrant families. But a lot of the the cultural awareness of the sagas and of medieval Scandinavian literature really was like disseminated from the top down, like from the academy and then from like middle class uh, printed printers. Yeah. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and the, the connection you made to Tolkien is really interesting because, of course, he was a linguist. And so the way that he he sort of used his language skills to create kind of a pseudo-Nordic race with the elves and their special language, and they're all blonde and they're tall and they live forever is really compelling. So did how did the popular representation of Vikings change or not change, I guess, over the course of the 20th century when, you know, America has finally stretched from sea to shining sea uh, and, you know, formal colonization, at least on the continent, comes to an end. Um, Is there a transformation in the image of the Viking? Uh, In particular, how does World War II and when you're fighting the Germans affect Vikings? I'd be curious about maybe how it develops over the first half of the 20th century up to and including World War II. Yeah. Well, I can say to start, um, even if the the sagas themselves weren't like widely read or popular among a lot of immigrant communities in the U.S. coming from Scandinavia, especially from like Norway, there certainly was an interest in kind of emulating Nordic heritage in the late 19th and early 20th centuries um, because of, you know, the process of racialization that all different ethnic groups undergo as they come to the United States. And so you have this interesting kind of ranking different immigrant groups based on, like, uh, different ethnic groups based on how how white they are. Um, and so the, the myth of Leif Erikson discovering America was 
just like Columbus was for Italian immigrants, a way for them to kind of claim like, oh, we belong in America. We are a part of America. You know, we're part of this melting pot and we deserve uh, to have equal economic access and opportunity. Um, And so Leif Erikson Day you know, SpongeBob Hingadingadurgen Day was, in fact, uh, a response by Norwegian and Swedish immigrant communities to Columbus Day becoming a thing. That they were like, "Oh, we should have, we should have one of those too." Um, I would say, post World War II, um, in my one of my classes, I teach the the 1958 Viking film, um, which I teach it. Almost, I don't mean to, but I end up teaching it. Oh, I hit the bumper. I end up teaching it as a Cold War film because it's, it has this very Shakespearean tone of two cultures, the the Vikings and the English, that represent uh, two different sides of the moral coin. And these cultures will never be able to integrate. And it's such a tragedy that these two great civilizations are kind of separated by fate. Um, and you have this love affair between a Viking character and an English woman, but it it's never going to work out because they can't be together. And I'm like, this feels like, you know, it's 1950s America. This feels like the 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 Soviet, like, the Cold War, like Soviet scare to me very much. So it becomes inflected by geopolitics, right? So oh, yeah. so I think I, I wanted to just make clear before we dive into the Northman, which to me seems like a show that's inflected by geopolitics, that this is sort of the role that the Viking plays in the American imaginary. Um, and I think it's so interesting and so smart, and our listeners are going to love that point about how it's like so connected to this image of colonization and this image of taming the untamable land. And in some sense, I think what's really interesting about Vikings is about how the literal taming makes the man is that they, the, the landscape makes the man and the Viking makes the landscape and how they go back and forth, which is so tied up in uh, ideas of, of, of manifest destiny uh, and indigenous dispossession. And that's so interesting. Um, so why don't, why don't now that we give that little precie just to pro- provide people with a bit of a context, why don't we get to the Northman? So I guess first, first, uh, first off first, what, what's, your, what's your ultimate take on it? I, I, I think one thing that it's been getting a lot of play for is being supposedly historically accurate the director, Robert Eggers, is really interesting because his whole oeuvre, um, including The Witch and The Lighthouse, are basically designed to like put you into a subjectivity, a pre-modern subjectivity in a sense, particularly with The Witch in this show. And so um, what I find so interesting about him is that what I think his major contribution is, is that he, things that uh, appear fantastical to us are just part of living in, in a Viking world. Um, so I was just wondering what you thought. Maybe we could just start with your hot take, what you thought. Is it accurate? Is it very inaccurate? And then we could just go from there and whatever you want to hit, because I have a million questions. <laughs> I would say that um, in some ways it is very accurate. I was very happy and pleased to see a lot of more recent scholarship on the Viking Age, especially archaeological and like material culture discoveries, um, be incorporated into the the film. Um, because, you know, I a lot of the Viking media from the last decade I see as just kind of recycling the same tropes from 50 years ago, which were being recycled from 50 years before that, you know. Um, and so this time I was like, oh, these are Things that the public might not necessarily know are like uh, archaeological realities uh, or material realities of the Viking Age. So that was very fun as someone who studies this period. Um, But I think my ultimate hot take was that 
I didn't like it, like as a film. <laughs> like I thought, I thought that the ethnographic interest of the film distracted from like the the movie, <laughs> like the narrative. Like by the end, can I talk about spoilers? Oh yeah, yeah. This is oh, a spoilers yeah, only, uh, full spoilers yeah. full podcast. Okay, yeah. great. By Come on. The, and the by plot the is end, important. It's Hamlet. Yeah, yeah. It's just Hamlet. We all know Hamlet. <laughs> I think this is yeah. But by the end of the movie, I'm sitting there in the theater. I had invited a, a couple of friends to go with me. Some of whom are also medievalists, and some of whom are more like film buffs, you know. And I get I get to the the final climactic fight when they're at on Hecla and they're like fighting naked on the lava, and I just started laughing. <laughs> I yeah, I was just like, I'm so bored. Why are we doing this? Like, I don't care. And it's not even like I'm so conflicted about this anti-hero protagonist who's morally ambiguous. I was like, no, I'm like so detached from this movie. I'm thinking about, you know, which train am I going to catch to get home? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I I watched I watched it like I went slipped out uh, one evening last week. To go see the movie, knowing that I was going to have to come back and work, do do some more work. So I, I'm somewhat somewhat similar to you. Like by the end of the movie, the last like quarter of the movie, I, my mind was on like, what am I going to be doing when I get home and have to go back to work? So I, I felt the same way. I kind of like slipped. It kind of like <laughs> slipped uh, past me. Um, but I'm curious, you know, without well, I mean, we've already spoiled it for anybody who didn't no, realize spoilers. that this was Hamlet. Um, we've already, you know, we, we've established that this is the, was the basis of Hamlet. I'm curious about the Amleth legend. And if you could talk a little bit about that and the, uh, its origins, where does it come from? Where do we, where does it come from in terms of the, the body of Norse myth? Are there sort of sources behind that, that, that kind of, you know, that it draws upon or what, what are the sort of roots of the, the legend? Yeah. So the, the film draws in its bare like bare bones broadest plot from Saxo Grammaticus's version of the story of Amletus uh, of Denmark. Um, Saxo Grammaticus was a 12th century historian in Denmark who was very interested in kind of the national project, or it was pre-national project, of creating one history that synthesized a lot of other histories uh, for Denmark specifically. Um, this like synthesis project of creating a national history is actually really popular in the 12th and 13th centuries. So Iceland does it too with sagas and you've got English historians doing the same kind of thing. So it's how do you marry all these disparate facts about the known world into one mega story? So Saxo just, Grammaticus. Hmm? Why, why? What's happening at this moment? Uh, as a historian, I'm curious. That's sort what of is, a nation building period, right? Yeah, what for, is the push for Scandinavia? To so there's trying these myths. Uh, well, it's part of that process. I would say in Scandinavia specifically, at this point, you're a few generations, and by a few, I mean like two, three hundred years out from Christianization as a process. So you have the consolidation, the beginnings of the consolidation of the nation state. And at the same time, this period, about 1050 to 1200, the High Middle Ages, is like kind of a, a, a renaissance of, of theological and historical interest. So there's also a huge like Christian invent of like, marrying all of these different narratives of, you know, pre-Christian or pagan or heathen pasts, how do we fit that into salvation history? You know, God's oh, plan for the world. Um, so, so Saxo wrote this absolutely enormous text um, that 
you read a bit of in grad school, you know, uh, but if you if you study Saxo, like you study Saxo, like that's what you do. <laughs> um, so he wrote in the 12th century the story of um, Omletus, one of the prince of Denmark, and most and most scholars, you know, the consensus is that he is pulling from oral traditions that no longer remain. Um, the only other instance we have of this. Um, besides Shakespeare's Hamlet, which was composed right around 1600, I think, um, is um, Amleva Saga, which is a much, much later, early modern. It only exists in paper manuscripts in Iceland, so the saga of Amlothi. Um, but people have argued that the saga of Amlothi might actually not be connected to Shakespeare's Hamlet at all, but is instead continuous oral tradition that Saxo was also pulling from that was retained in Iceland, which is entirely possible. That's one of the things I talk a lot about in my, my sagas course here at, at UW is that there's um, a lot of oral tradition and even a lot of myths that we just know nothing about. There's even references in like the stories we have from the 13th century, again, um, about, you know, Thor and Odin and Loki and the different gods. There's, you know, a couple references to a god named Utlur. We know very little about him. Presumably he was really popular. There's whole regions of Scandinavia that have lots of like towns and like places named after him. So he must have had a very large cult following, but like, we don't, we don't know. So like, why not? Why not a Hamlet story? You know? (laughs) (laughs) So maybe uh, if we go to Saxo and he seems to be like the, probably the main inspiration here, what, what does that story tell? What, what are its major themes? What is it trying to express? Um, Because obviously the Northmen and Hamlet, I would imagine are spins on that. So in the context of the sort of nation building project of the 12th century, what is Saxo trying to express with this myth that becomes foundational to the North Atlantic culture? You know, one of the big ones. Yeah, so the the story of Omletus that Saxo tells, Omletus is very Omlet is very clearly the hero of the story. He's he's the perfect prince in that he manages to escape um, an attempted assassination, you know, and he also he plays the fool, as it were. I think the Latin is like imbecilus or something. That's another thing. Saxo writes in Latin, so this is a a huge Latin work, a great example of like high high Middle Ages learning. Um, uh, Omelette successfully returns and avenges the death of his father and then uh, is later betrayed and dies but is buried and is like venerated after after his death. And he's so cool the whole time. He like outsmarts his uncle. He has two wives and they're both really hot. Um, and in fact, the second wife was sent by the King of England to kill him, but she ended up marrying him instead because he was yeah, just too much so, swag. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, too, too much man. I mean, too know. swagged out. Is there a Gertrude character or a mother character rather in the original? So is it the same classic mother betrays father for uncle? They kill dad. Prince is dealing with that. Yeah, broad broad strokes the same. I will say the addition of her being a slave um, or having formerly been uh, an enslaved person in the in the Northman in the film, that's as far as I know, not in Saxo's version. So that's a, a change that they made. That That's a change I think I like, actually. Um, but. Yeah, it kind of gives her a reason for 
doing what she did. I, yeah. I, I agree. Be, with beyond you. just being a w- woman and sort of a gendered right. stereotype, just, yeah, it gives obvious, her motivation. Right, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> let's go to the Northmen then, because you said that one of the interesting things about it when we're thinking of sort of the Viking. Anglo canon is that it took a lot of the new research, particularly material discoveries, seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, could you maybe talk about what 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 was that? And and maybe it might be useful to compare to the show Vikings. Like, what does Vikings do badly that this does well, and things along those lines? Not badly in an artistic sense, but in terms of historical accuracy. Since these are documentaries, so they don't have to follow it. But I'm just curious. Like, Eggers prides himself on research. Yeah. I watched a couple of interviews that Eggers did uh, about the Northman and, and what exactly he was proud about. And he talked so much about the construction of the Viking Age farm that they build in Iceland. Um, and then also a lot of the clothing that characters wear, that all of their costumes were based on real archaeological uh, excavations, which, which is true. What's not true, obviously, is who's wearing them and what they're doing. But I I was really happy to see the costuming in this film. Um, people think of the Middle Ages as being just like dirty and gray. And this film is very dirty and this film is very gray, but at least the characters have embroidery on their tunics. Like <laughs> that's people care about how they look. And and we see evidence of that in the medieval period in Scandinavia as well. So it was really nice to see that like, oh, they, this person has a dyed green tunic and this person is a blue one and they all have like fun little collars and things. That was really satisfying. Um, but like... Uh, I think there's a Wired interview with Neil Price where he walks through, who's at the University of Uppsala, who walks through all the different weapons that those are all from Viking Age graves. Um, Same with uh, the big one, which is depicting slavery at all. I think that's one thing that Vikings, the History Channel's Vikings show gets wrong, that they're not interested in rendering visible that labor. Whereas the Northman really is interested in rendering that labor visible. So when they're constructing the farm, Fjolnir's farm in Iceland, and we get these kind of long montages of slave labor putting the farm together um, and the kind of drudgery of those days, um, that was that was really, I think, important. And that's something I see as like, oh, I can use this in my teaching, right? This is one of the only modern Viking films that includes an interest in slavery. And like the, the manacles that they wear around their neck when they're being marched over Iceland, which... That's not right, but fine. <laughs> the, the them marching, that is. Yeah, the manacles, that's an American image, I think, from American popular culture. Well, no, and Americans. The, the manacles are are real. That's a real thing. Oh, really? I I oh, meant I the the actual the actual cuts that they make in the film when they're walking across Iceland. They just picked like three landscapes in Iceland, and they were like, "This is cool. This is cool. This is a, oh, to show mistake. communicate." Yeah. So the manacles the, are real. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So there's um, I think it's at the. Birka excavation in southern Sweden um, at one of the trading ports they've been has been found some of these manacles that are the right size for a human neck. It's difficult to determine exactly how those manacles would have been used because we know that like Viking Age peoples in Scandinavia also traded horses and cattle and sheep and goats and so like a human neck and a goat neck not too different, right? But but we know, we know that there was a significant underclass of enslaved peoples, especially on larger farms in Scandinavia. 
what was the nature of that slavery? Was it was it a form of chattel slavery? Could people work for their freedom? Were they considered like what is the role? Were they considered quote unquote part of the family, or were they considered someone external to the social group? Could could there be intermarriage? Because as as you noted, the, the mother character played by Nicole Kidman was a former slave. So could you talk about about the nature of Viking slavery? Yes, I can. Um, Viking, the the biggest thing to take away about Viking Age slavery is that it's not the same across Scandinavia. Um, Scandinavia is, you know, hundreds of miles wide and hundreds of years long is the Viking Age. Um, and so slavery in eastern Sweden prop on the Baltic Sea probably looked really different from slavery in like western Iceland. Um but we do have, for example, in the sagas, uh, Lockstyler Saga, a very famous saga of the Icelanders, uh, one of the main characters of that saga, Olavr Pauwe, which translates to Olaf Peacock, his mother was an enslaved person. Her name was Melkorka, and she was an enslaved, she was an enslaved Irish princess who was bought by Olaf's father um, at a slave market, I think in Dublin, though I might be misremembering. Um, and we know Dublin was also a very large slave market. Most of the slaves that are described in the sagas of Icelanders that talk about um, the Ice- the Viking Age in Iceland, most of the slaves that are named have, uh, have names that are of, of Celtic origins. And we know from like uh, matrilineal mitochondrial DNA that a significant percentage of the female population in Iceland at time of settlement was Celtic or was from the British Isles. So so we know, we know that it happened. Some slaves we do have on the books, some slaves do have some rights in the Viking Age, so you cannot kill your slave. Um, and some, we know some enslaved peoples did buy their freedom or were gifted their freedom. So that same saga, Lockstyla saga, one of the Viking Age chieftains, who's actually a woman, in the deep-minded, when she dies, she bequeaths some of her land to some of her slaves whom she frees and then gives them a farm and their own valley. Um, so it is it is possible. Um, in terms of like in-group, out-group, I'm going to lean really heavy on this Celtic thing again because Iceland is more my area, but uh, we know we know therefore, right, that people were speaking, this was a multilingual environment. That character Olaf Pauwe, Olaf Peacock, he speaks both Old Norse and Irish in the saga, and that's important because he can he goes to Ireland and like communicates and meets his his grandfather, his mother's father, and like chats with him and for a bit in Irish. So so we know there's multilingualism. We what we don't see is any evidence of that multilingualism really in the written record except in personal names. And that's most likely because that was considered to be the language of the underclass. It was not a prestige language and not the one that people used. Um, I'm just rambling, but I have more. Can I tell you another example? Yeah, please. Give us as (laughs) many as you want. (laughs) There's another really famous saga called Ail's Saga where, um, and this actually is good because we can talk about the, the game the, the Viking rugby game. <laughs> um, oh, good, great. Let's go. Yeah. Let's do that and go into the rugby game. And then yeah. let's go into a question about gender because I think that's, that is huge. Yeah. So there's a scene in Eil's saga where Eil, the main character, the protagonist of that saga, his father in a rage kills his nursemaid 
which is often how the term, the Old Norse term is translated. She has an Irish name. And Eil is so angry that his father, in a berserker rage, has killed his nursemaid, that Eil kills one of his, his father's favorite slave. Uh, so you have this kind of tit-for-tat moment. Eil at the time, I think, is like seven years old. So this is foreshadowing for Eil as he grows up and it does more wreaks more Viking havoc, as if you will. Um, but he, he's so, the fact that he's so angry at the death of his nursemaid shows that at, there is at least, at least in the 13th century, right, some um, sympathy for personal relationships uh, on farm spaces with, with enslaved peoples who work on your farm. But that doesn't mean it was good. <laughs> right, of course. Um, yeah. Right. It's yeah. never good to be a slave. Right. Uh, basically, yeah. And so how does that connect? I'd love to talk for a second about the Viking rugby game. And if that is proto-rugby, is this realistic? What 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 is that? Or accurate well, rather. <laughs> yeah, I brought up I brought up uh Ale Saga about it because there's also a scene in Ale Saga when again he's like seven, he's a child. There are a couple of scenes when he's a kid and does these very precocious things where he's a sore loser at a ball game, kind of like this one. Um, Ale is a chieftain's son, and he and the other boys are playing a game, a ball game, and the other boys are bigger than him. And so Ale loses and becomes so upset that he kills one of the other boys who's playing. And uh, that in the saga is not really framed as like a good thing. Like, a chieftain's son should not lose his temper that way, and Ale famously has a very short temper, doesn't have very good control over his own emotions. He's kind of a tragic figure in that he's like, he's just too big for the world. He's His body's too big. He has too much aggression. He has too many deep thoughts. Like, he's, he's a warrior poet is the, like, genre of saga that his saga is. So as for the game in The Northman, we do have multiple references to ball games like that that would have been played as leisure activities by people in Viking Age Iceland. Um, and I think, uh, so that's really cool. I, Were they that brutal? Like, they depicted them as, like, extremely brutal. Well, they yeah, in the film, it seemed like they were pitting groups of slaves from two different farms against each other and, like, having them kill each other for sport. Like, it's as you got eliminated, your body was just kind of dragged off the field. I would say, and this sounds very, I would say that's not a good use of one's slave labor, Right, um, right. Speaking if, quite if you th- practically, imagine them as capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. It's like destroying feel, your. It's not good value, value for for the money. Yeah, Fjolnir yeah. Fjolnir spent a lot of money on on those people, which is an awful sentence. Um, however, we do yeah, know. Yeah, I felt weird just saying that. Actually, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not good value for the money. Return on investment. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the way slavery is depicted in this film, but after yes, we talk about do. the game before we do before we do gender. Um, uh, but uh, so we do have we do have references to ball games in the sagas, though as far as I know, they are not between enslaved peoples. They're between like free men or even landowning farmers and their families. Um, they're the male relatives, um, and it was a kind of a friendly way to spend time with people in your region. That said, we do also have evidence from the sagas of things like gambling. 
and things like horse fighting, which is basically the Viking Age equivalent of like cock fighting, where you would kind of goad two horses to attack each other. And so it's entirely possible that you could have had um, slave slave fighting rings for sport, that forcing your slaves to inflict pain on each other for, as a form of entertainment. I'm not aware of that in the corpus, but I think that thematically for the Northman, it fits in quite well because the Northman wants you to see the brutalities of slavery and come away thinking that was bad. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that brings us very naturally to the question of gender. And But before we get into that, I just want to highlight that on the show Vikings, one of the most compelling characters is, of course, Ragnar Lothbrok's wife, uh, Lagertha. And, and I think that introduced the concept of the shield maiden to American popular culture, even though it's existed before. So could you maybe, uh, uh, this is probably the same answer, you know, Scandinavia is huge and there are lots of different cultures. But is what is, I mean, what is the role of women is too large of a question, but uh, is is there... A, a character like the shield maiden or, or, or do women fight in Viking battles? Um, what is broadly speaking, again, this is way too broad a question, but their role in society. I'm just asking it broadly so you could just zoom in on whatever you want listeners to know. I would say one big takeaway, uh, gender is very much tied to class both today and in the Viking Age. There's a real, there's a famous, there's a scene. It's not a famous scene. It's just a scene from one of the first episodes of uh, The Last Kingdom which I yes, think you mentioned the at the top of the, the show, yeah, yeah. where the, yeah. the love interest for season one, um, Unferth's, or uh, what's his name? Oh, the main character, it doesn't matter. His, his father has the same name. He stumbles across his love interest and she's standing like waist deep in a lake washing clothes. <laughs> and he's like, wow so domestic i'm so aroused right now and it's very romantic and he like he gets in the water and they like kiss and stuff and i'm like okay what's happening noble women didn't wash their own clothes right slave enslaved women or itinerant washer women who were of this kind of labored um underclass uh even if they had their freedom they weren't necessarily tied to one household they're the ones doing the manual labor of laundry right that's not noble women so there's not only is Scandinavia lots of cultures, but there's also lots of women <laughs> who do different things. Noble women do have in the texts that survive quite an important role in the day-to-day -day management of the household, like the entire farm, like they hire and fire workers. There's um, in Njal's saga, a, a married couple, Gunnar and Haldgerder, Gunnar and Halgerd, they fight for like a hundred pages over how to manage food stores in their household. Like they fight over money all the time and how to manage all their employees on the farm. They hire a lot of tenant workers and that's a, a big source of conflict in their marriage. Um, so they women held uh, important roles practically and then they also held important roles ritually. Um, so and this actually is a pan Scandinavian even into like the British Isles like Germanic broadly Germanic thing um, that women had a ritual role in feasting. Women traditionally are the ones who brew ale. So that's a kind of magic in itself. You're transforming one liquid into another. I mean, that's one of Christ's miracles. It's a very big deal to make beer, to make alcohol. Uh, and so women, noble women, will be the ones to welcome guests and to serve them ale. And not in like a, oh, I'm going to be your server for this evening kind of labor class 
working thing, but a rather welcome to my home. I am divvying out our resources to welcome you, my guest kind of mode. There's, if you've read Beowulf, it's like that. Um, this particular film, The Northman, I really enjoyed seeing women in the roles of religious specialist as well. Um, and then also, so we have the the Valkyrie character that Omelette's girlfriend, Olga? I think Olga, name? yeah. Yeah, that she she has um, supernatural ability. Um, and then there's also Björk. In, in the film who is gives gives this kind of prophecy, uh, which is very much like a fantasy saga, like popular saga that medieval people would have told, you know, of a heroic saga, um, generic expectation that you have some kind of prophecy about the fate of your hero. Um, that was really cool to see her in there. But that, I think, is is more, is working off of more recent archaeological evidence. This is another example of, of that, that um, there are, not too long ago, some excavations were done in, again, in southern Sweden, uh, where we found, um, uh, like, the top of, like, a crook, like a, a cane or, like, a bishop's crook um, that has, like, a little animal figurehead on it in the grave of a woman, which indicates, from the Viking Age, which indicates that she probably had some sort of shamanic role um, or religious specialist role. And there's also... In Fadlan's account of the Rus, which is a 10th century description of... Oh, we'll get into the Rus yeah. in a second. Yeah, Derek has <laughs> a few questions about that. Yeah. There's women women in there who also are serving as this kind of religious specialist role. I personally was really excited to see the male shaman in this film. Who, Can we talk about that for a bit? The Viking yeah. ritual as displayed in the film? Well, actually, just shield maidens. Oh. Real or not real? <laughs> Is Wonder Woman real? <laughs> That's that that would be my answer. That like we have stories of Wonder Woman. Like Wonder Woman was super popular in the 50s and 60s before women could enlist in the military as foot soldiers. But we have so this there doesn't fantasy. seem to be evidence, basically. Uh, well, what evidence would we look for? We would look for bodies of women who either are buried with other soldiers or fighters or who have wounds, evidence of wounds on their bones, right? We do have a grave in Sweden, BJ581 out of Birka, of a, a woman who is buried with a bunch of weapons with other men around her who also are buried with weapons. So very clearly she had some kind of martial role. Um, but we do also have several mass graves from the Viking Age um, that very clearly it's mostly young men who died in these battles, and we don't find any female skeletons. However, that one female grave from Birka, 581, BJ581, that was a reanalysis of that grave relatively recently. Because it had originally been sexed male right, because so could, of wow. all of the fighting stuff with it. So so I think that that discovery kind of calls for a re-examination of the material evidence that we have. Um, I think Vikings, the television show, you have Lagertha and you have a lot of women who fight. Um, but then in The Northmen, you only have one. Just that right. one. And I, I feel like that's almost swinging the pendulum like too far the other way. Interesting. So um, so it's open and, and open to material things. So I know uh, Derek has a question. Sorry, Derek, but I just want to, we're on the ritual part. So maybe yeah. we could just talk a little bit about what you thought about the display of Viking ritual, the use of bodily fluids, the use of flatulence, I think has gotten a lot of play. And is that real? What do we know? All that good stuff. 
So a lot of the poetry that we have uh, is, and even some of the sagas are very interested in blood. Like, <laughs> like so there's a, a very famous um, myth that is how Odin got the mead of wisdom that allows him to like be so wise and s- speak all of the poetry. Um, and it involves um, dwarves killing a giant named Kvasir and then fermenting his blood into mead. Um, and so this transmutation of of liquid from one liquid into another, then that newer one having magical properties is a pretty strong like motif across Scandinavian mythology. Um, and I already talked about how women brewing ale, that's that's a kind of magic, you know, and a lot of magic in the sagas is um, you imbibe it. So there there's like, oh, someone knows that this drink has been poisoned, right? Um, there's a scene in Ale Saga where ale is able to um, prevent a poisoning by cutting runes on his hand and then putting, clasping his bloody hand onto the cup, and it bursts as a sign that there's poison there, which actually is, I think, an allusion to the life of St. Benedict. St. Benedict has a very similar scene where God I saves him. I was thinking him, the same thing. <laughs> of course, yeah, duh. Um, <laughs> but but uh, in terms, yes, the... The uh, use of liquids, I would say, is is not wrong, um, or at least is is based on larger patterns in the myth tradition from Scandinavia. The the what about the flatul- psychedelics? And I'm oh, sorry, flatulence and then psychedelics. Oh no, we can do we can do psychedelics. So we know that at least some people did them, <laughs> and that's so vague. We've found some um, evidence. In graves, uh, at least one burial that I know of, uh, that we found henbane seeds in the grave. Henbane is something called like uh, deadly stinging nightshade or something like that, and it's it's a hallucinogen. Um, so most likely would have been used for you know medicinal purposes or for you know ritual religious purposes. Um, we don't have any physical evidence of using like psychedelic mushrooms right from viking age scandinavia but it's all organic materials like those degrade they decompose we're not going to be able to find them and what we do have is you know people drinking in the in the mythology and in some of the later sagas people drinking potions that do create some kind of altered state. I get this question from students like every quarter, did the Vikings do mushrooms? <laughs> and and I and I always tell them I say like I wouldn't rule it out, but there's also a lot of ways that humans can enter altered states of consciousness. Right. And like the and, berserkers, yeah. Yeah, and much more common cross-culturally and in the Arctic is to use some of those other techniques. So things like um, hyperventilating or like changing your breathing patterns, spinning is another one, drumming is another one, chanting or doing like low chants. And you see that in the film, right? The the production team had really had a ball, I think, with kind of recreating or reimagining what kinds of, of trance aids would have been available to people in the Viking age. I also felt at the same time kind of uncomfortable with those scenes because a lot of what we know about how to induce trance states in the cultures of the Arctic specifically come to us from ethnographic work uh, with Sami people, the indigenous people of northern Scandinavia, and not dissimilar from 
uh, here in North America, it was illegal for a large part of the last several centuries for indigenous peoples to practice their own religious traditions. So we go to see the Northman and we're like, oh, wow, cool. They're doing like shamanic trance. And it's like, well, Native Americans couldn't practice their religion legally until the 70s, you know. So it was right. it was there's, an interesting there's a colonialism inherent yeah. in the project. Yeah. And and again, inherent in the project I think is a good way to phrase it cuz like if you want to depict what it right. most likely would have been like then you're going to do this, but your audience isn't necessarily going to know the history of that. I felt right. I felt the same way really quickly. I felt the same way about some of the choices they made with depicting slavery, like the scene when Fjolnir buys omelet when they make it to Iceland and he does it by like inspecting their teeth that's not in the old Norse corpus anywhere that's coming out of you know global slave trade traditions American ideas about you know and true experiences that happened to enslaved peoples you know that that so stuff like that where I'm like oh okay we're borrowing on other from other traditions to kind of flesh out this world the flatulence and then that's <laughs> that's, that's to Derek after that so um there's uh, that same famous story about Odin getting the mead. Uh, the The story goes that he drinks a lot of it and then transforms into the shape of a bird and flies back to Asgard. And the giants who have the mead chase after him. And so Odin, in order to like lighten his load, he vomits out the good mead, he regurgitates it and the, the, the Aesir catch it in some big buckets uh, back in Asgard. And then he also shits out, can I say that on your podcast? Oh, yes, yes. We're a <laughs> yeah. very, very podcast. Yeah. <laughs> he, he also <laughs> shits out some of the mead um, from his back end. And Snorri Sturluson, our 13th century author of the text that this myth comes to us in, says, and that's where bad poetry comes from. <laughs> That's a good so, origin story. Then. <laughs> sure. So yeah, so yeah, there's fart jokes. There's also not. There's also a pretty long history of um, having kind of a court poet who will um, speak truth to power. Like both Willem Dafoe, yeah. Yeah, both the power of the king, but also the power of the king's maybe enemies who are coming to visit. You know, and so you can you can say a lot with humor. Like, the more dick jokes you make, the less people take you seriously, but the closer to actually calling a spade a spade you can, you can get. So uh, some, of, some of the Skaldic poems we have are quite, uh, quite humorous in, like, body humor kind of ways. Quite ribald, if you will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, but the, but the shaman character, the male shaman character from the film, I got so far away. I loved how they did his costuming. That he visually communicates a kind of, of queerness, like sexual queerness, by wearing the brooches that are associated with upper-class women. Again, that's the kind of thing where it's like, I don't know if your average moviegoer would get that, but I was like, okay, so he's kind of in this sexually ambiguous space. Yeah, a liminal space, yeah. Yeah, and, and holding William Defoe's head between his legs as he's receiving the vision, as if he's like giving birth. You know, and having these kinds of like labor contractions as he's shaking and doing this. It was so it was so cool. That was my favorite. That was my favorite scene. <laughs> <laughs> um so I had a question, and this is actually kind of led into it. Before I say this, I want to let everybody know like one of Danny's passions is the the lives of the Christian saints. So when you start talking about Saint Benedict, <laughs> it's uh it's right up his alley. It's all I can um, talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, when you, you we catch up 
to Omelette after the the betrayal of his father, and and you know time passes, and uh, we catch up to him in this scene where they are doing you know what you you talked about a little earlier, uh, this low chanting kind of you know trying to achieve an altered state of consciousness so they can go into battle as berserkers, you know the kind of people who wrestle a horse to the ground or like kill somebody by kicking him in the face, and um, I'm curious about the portrayal of the berserker in the movie and how that aligns with sort of the the mythic portrayal of the the viking berserker warrior and and then you know what the connection is between that and the actual you know ways that vikings fought that we or that we uh you know we can sort of surmise that they fought yeah um Ooh, the berserker question. <laughs> um, I would, I, I would. There's. Ooh, okay. So, there are a few different written sources that describe berserkers not as individuals, but like kind of as groups. So, Snorri Sturluson, 13th century historian who Friend wrote. Friend of the pot. Oh yeah, hell yeah! Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, he wrote uh, down a lot of the myths that we have that we call like Norse mythology. That was that was him. He also uh, another text is attributed to him, Inglinga Saga, which is a saga that is the history of the kings of Norway, uh, Heimskringla rather, which means just like all around the world. So he wrote Heimskringla, a history of the kings of Norway, and the first text within the history of the kings of Norway is called Inglinga Saga, and he starts with the first king of Norway, of course, Odin. Duh. <laughs> of course. So, I mean, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he actually starts with Thor, um, who he says comes from Turkey. and Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, it's because the Greeks and Romans hold a lot of prestige in the 12th and 13th century in Europe, broadly. So you actually get a lot of interest in the British Isles as well. These historians that I was talking about earlier, they all want to be able to trace themselves back to the Mediterranean somehow. And so Snorri makes this argument that like, well, because Thor's name is Thor, he must be from Troy or maybe from Turkey, but like he was from the Mediterranean and then went north um, and from him comes the line of kings of Norway. Um, and he talks about Odin and some of the magics that Odin was able to do and thereby trick people into thinking that he was a god, which, again, very common strategy for these salvation history historians, euhemerism, saying that they weren't actually gods, the pagan gods. They, must, they were just men who tricked people. They were charlatans, right? And he describes Odin's followers as being as acting like animals as you know being as strong as wolves but also howling like wolves and entering this kind of altered state of consciousness um snorri's writing in the 13th century right so that's that's one thing on the other end we have a first century text so over a thousand years before and like 700 years before the viking age tacitus writes an ethnography of basically everybody north of rome and he calls it Germania, you know, the people, the, and in it, he describes a bunch of different tribes of, like, basically everything from Rome up to Finland um, based on second and third hand accounts. And he describes the German, I'm putting quotation marks, this is an audio medium, but the Germanic troops, uh, when they fight, uh, he describes them as being very loud, that they yell a lot, and that they bite at their shields. 
This is actually confirmed in the Lewis chess pieces, which are, you know, a Viking Age material artifact where the knight figures have uh, are depicted holding their rounded shields in front of them and gnawing at the top of them. That they, the berserkers, have these kind of like madness associated, this bloodlust associated with them. That they are like they are like animals. Um, whether or not this is a thing that people actually did is, to a certain extent, impossible to prove. Um, but certainly in, the, in the, co- the cultural consciousness, you have this image of the berserker. Um, Imagine the dental work they would have needed <laughs> after oh, yeah. gnawing well, on their shit. And it's in the British Museum. If anyone wants to visit it, it's really, it's, they're really cool chess pieces. <laughs> yeah. The the dental work, it's funny you mentioned that Olga, when uh, Omelette has a vision of her as a Valkyrie, she's got kind of, it looks like braces across her teeth. She's got these indentions on her front teeth. That's also an archaeological thing. There's at least one grave with multiple bodies in it that we found that showed that uh, the, the I think it's I think it's on the east coast of England. Don't quote me on that, but it's you know Viking Age excavation um, where people have filed into the dentin, the enamel on their front teeth, and then dyed it red. So so certainly there was part of the Viking Age strategy of of Norse raiders was to intimidate the opponent. You know, being very loud, being very terrifying looking. Um, so. To that extent, I'd say yes. When I when I teach about berserkers in my sagas course, I often I will point out to my students that uh, in the sagas, anyway, they're not usually the good guys. By the later part of the medieval period in in Icelandic literature, berserkers are almost just like an obstacle that the hero has to overcome. So some berserker will like come and threaten a town or threaten to marry the farmer's daughter, and the farmer's too poor and too weak and too old to defend himself. And so here comes our hero marching in to defeat the berserker. You know, they kind of become like caricatures of themselves. Um, but even in in the big sagas, like Eil's saga, Eil is descended from people who maybe are werewolves. His grandfather maybe was a werewolf, at least a shapeshifter. Um, he enters a kind of berserker rage several times, and uh, he's it's not good. The sagas are really interested in how concentrated power should be or if power should be concentrated at all. Like, who gets to decide how we act as a community? Is it the one strong guy who can fight everybody else? And a lot of the sagas say, no, that's actually a really bad way to organize a society. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> the, I had another... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, oh, go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to answer your question about, is this actually how Viking Age oh, people yeah, yeah, fought? sure. Viking Age people... It, it depends on where you are. But like, <laughs> one, of, <laughs> one of my favorite facts to say is that the majority of raids in the Viking Age perpetrated by Vikings were on what we would... were in what we would call now Scandinavia. Right. So like you're you're not going down to like Spain and raiding, although they did also do that. Most of the time you're going up into areas of Norway and Sweden and Finland um, or Denmark and you're you're fighting with the chieftain next door or you're you're collecting taxes 
on behalf of the chieftain who's amassing power down in southern Norway, you know, so you're there as a representative of the new king of Norway, give me all your money, or I'll burn your house down, kind <laughs> of kind of situation. So and they do they do go in very quickly and come out very quickly. They hit her on the okay. coast. So it's, you know, we it's don't, very hit and run, yeah. 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 Take what you can carry, basically. <laughs> uh, so I, I on that on the, the the king of Norway, which is a good segue actually to my my other question. Uh, I want to ask about somebody who's sort of uh, mentioned in the movie uh, is actually a fairly major figure, I think, in in uh, at least Scandinavian myth. I don't know uh, the his, the history or the historicity behind him. Uh, but when we catch up to Omelette and he finds out that Fjolnir is, uh, you know, still out there, we learn that he's lost his kingdom and been kind of driven into this uh, exile in Iceland. Uh, and he's lost his kingdom to uh, Harold Fairhair, who's, you know, kind of legendarily the the first king of Norway, I think. I mean, in a, in a historical sense, not, not to, you know, insult Odin or anything. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm curious, uh, I was curious, you know, what can we say about him? I mean, you know, he's obviously not a focus of the, the movie, but it was interesting that there's this like passing reference to him. And, uh, you know, I knew enough to know that like, the, you know, this is like a, uh, you know, fairly important figure. Uh, what can we say about him from a, from a historical versus kind of a, a mythological perspective? Yeah, so King Harold Fairhair uniting all of Norway is the big story, right? And it's questionable. What is Norway really? <laughs> um, Norway, Norway's only been Norway for you know less than two hundred years. Actually, over two hundred years. Eighteen fourteen was over. Oh God, we're all getting old, aren't we? <laughs> um, it was over two hundred years ago. Um, yes, King Harold Fairhair is traditionally associated with with uniting much of of southern Norway of what today we call Norway. Um, King Olaf Tryggvason, a couple of generations later, probably actually did a lot a lot more for like conversion to Christianity and and kind of getting these different regions more fully under his thumb. I will say, in terms of the settlement of Iceland, the sagas of Icelanders are incredibly consistent in their depiction of the motivations for settlement, that almost all of them start out in the days of King Harold Fair Hare was a poor, innocent farmer who owned his own farm in Norway, and King Harold Fair Hare came and said, pay me taxes or leave or I'll burn your farm down. And so he packed up and took all of his wealth and all of his family and moved to Iceland where he settled in such and such valley. And it's been called that ever since, you know, and a lot of those, that's every single saga that starts like that. There's also an entire book uh, about the settlement called Landnámabók, the book of settlements that describes all that names all of the different households, all, all the different farms all around Iceland, many of which date back to, you know, the late ninth century. Um, uh, when I teach that text, I say this is this is a way to establish land rights, right? This is the the reintroduction of private property, right? Or like the we're we're imposing conceptions, legal in conceptions of private property that we own this land because we've lived here a long time um, in Iceland. Whether or not King Harold Fairhair actually did that. Again, how would we know? We would know from what people wrote about him. And so the fact that the sagas are so consistent points to that potentially being a real 
a real thing, that there were changes in taxation policies, potentially, with him rising in power as a chief, consolidating power in the South that pushed people out. Um, it's also, though, a narrative that is very, like, pro-Iceland, um, both in a contemporary sense of, like, Iceland being this, like, very small island nation um, whose own ne- sense of national identity in the 19th century was very tied up in its difference from Denmark and Norway, um, its own c- its cultural distinction. Um, but then even in the medieval period, right, this idea that, like, oh, we, the Icelandic chieftains, the nobles, are somehow um, victims of uh, Norwegian hegemony and are, you know, should should be... Uh, united in our in our uh, strategy of how to deal with the power relationships with the Norwegian crown, you know, because Iceland goes under the power of the Norwegian crown in the 13th century, which is when a lot of these stories are being written. So you see uh, Norway not really depicted very positively in a lot of these stories, and that may very well be a uh, reflection of contemporary event, events, just as it is uh, a telling of, you know, potentially real historical events. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was it was a fun it was a fun little Easter egg when when he was like, oh, Fjolnir's been pushed out to like the backwaters of Iceland. I was like, ha! <laughs> and you compare the size of farms in Norway from like the sixth and seventh centuries to the size of farms in Iceland from like the eighth and ninth cent- or the ninth and tenth centuries. The farms in Iceland are way smaller. Like, way smaller. And the material culture is, forgive forgive me, Icelanders, is far less rich. There's just, there's not as much stuff. And there's n- and of the stuff that we have, there's not nearly as much, like, gold. We have huge gold deposits in Denmark and in, and in Norway, large graves. The graves in Iceland are much smaller uh, by comparison, hmm. much poorer. So there, there may very well be something to that. Um, we know that Iceland most likely, when it was first started being settled, was kind of thought of most likely probably as like a, not a trading post, but like an outpost where you would go out to to collect seasonal goods like walrus and, and things like that. So um, it, it probably did have, and there's also scenes in the sagas where Icelanders will come to the king's court and people will like make passive aggressive comments about their clothing because they don't dress fancy <laughs> enough. So... There's so, a, so, there's so it's a frontier. I mean, it's a it's a frontier community, basically. Yeah, like yeah. Country bumpkins. <laughs> basically, so yeah. We've been going for a little over an hour, so why don't we actually um, end on this question? And we could probably do more on this. And Lauren, we'd love to have you back. But one of the interesting things about this show is that it depicts, um, you know, Ukraine, not Ukrainians, you know, proto. I, I don't. I don't. How? What would be the way to describe them? Um, because uh, the geopolitical situation right now with Russia and Ukraine is obvious. We, we've talked about it a bit on the show, and it was ironic that they go to Kiev in in the movie. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about. What do you think they were trying to depict there? And and what do you think of that depiction? And then we could end on that. And we'd love to have you back in the future. Yeah. So that there, you could call them the Rus. They're often called also the Kievan, the Kievan Rus, um, which is a an M, a later middle a later medieval empire. Um, and there's this long-standing question about whether or not they were Vikings, right? Because it's a cultural continuum. So in some ways they very much are, but in some ways, they very much aren't. And there's a lot of national interest in Russia, Ukraine, and in Sweden and Denmark and Norway of claiming 
the Rus as being Vikings or being, you know, part of the Russian Empire or actually part of the, you know, long-standing tradition of Ukraine as an independent state, right? There's a, how we talk about them. You, you bring up a really good point. Is very much based in in contemporary politics, and that was true, you know, in the 1960s as well as today. So the, I usually will call them the Rus in class. I saw an interview with Skarsgård where he actually talked about why they chose it. And maybe he was just being kind of flippant in his answer. He said that in the original script, they were going to go to the British Isles, but that that has been done so many times before. They wanted to go somewhere different. And so they decided to go east. A lot of the depictions of Vikings we have are very much focused on the west because the sagas of Icelanders are such a rich mine of material. Um, We have a lot less written literature coming out of Sweden from the same period, like just immediately after the Viking Age. So, But we do have a lot more archaeological stuff. So I think that was probably just part of Eggers's historical interest in depicting things that are very well known in scholarship but aren't depicted elsewhere. And he made an interesting choice, too, with the funeral ritual that Fjolnir has for his son in Iceland, that that ritual is described in Ibn Fadlan's account of the Rus. That's a Rusin ritual. So we have a whole, I have a whole day in, in my mythology class where we talk about, is this actually a Viking ritual or not? What is a Viking? Is it a time period, a territory, or a lifestyle? You know, like, what is it? <laughs> or a know? vibe. Maybe it's just yeah, a vibe. Yeah, or a vibe. Yeah, <laughs> Aren't we like all think, Vikings? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so beautiful. And, and that's really just a beautiful note to end on. Lauren Poyer, thank you so much. Um, we would love to have you back on again to talk all things Vikings. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate that you were on American Prestige. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah.